Good evening, friends. Um, some housekeeping at the top of the show tonight. Last year, we were sponsored by I Love Pod Media as part of their new creator's sponsorship scheme. And the idea had been to, you know, break out of the ghetto of parapolitical podcasting and aim for the heart of the mainstream. Well, Graveyard Bunker 2 met with a pretty bad response from I Love Pod's core demographic, you know. The subject matter upset many of them. And I was called y'all and do better by fucking crybabies for several months. Those people, they can send you some pretty harrowing tweets in between answering emails all day for too much money. And despite the fact, you know, that I had no control over the advertisements, I was accused of planting subliminal messages in them. Four listeners killed themselves. Another six went on shooting sprees, allegedly because I used the word teat gratuitously. And worse, I saw a sustained decline in engagement. And even Vauxhall Cross, who they'd negotiated the entire endeavor with Langley, and they said I had their full support. Even they issued a burn notice on me. And then, you know, the little fuckboys at I Love Pod informed me that, you know, we're not picking up that show. Too much controversy, too much hassle. So I had to save what was left of my listenership by organizing a drive to decolonize the magic kingdom. And yeah, I don't know, you've, you haven't known suffering until a 37-year-old claims adjuster from Portland in Maine tells you that your English accent triggers their epigenetic trauma. Do I get thanks for my efforts to make this shit respectable? Does anyone, does anyone acknowledge my influence ever? Does anyone ask how the ghost boy is doing? No, nobody wishes to help the widow's son. And that's fine, you know, I'm Zorro and Zorro rides alone. So yeah, it got me thinking, basically, the, the fallout from the last Halloween show, the failed attempt to go mainstream. I have been consistently taken for granted ever since this show took off. So this year, I'm going to the Graveyard Bunker, but only because it is my safe space. It is a geek-proof environment. I have no desire to construct another exquisitely produced hour of horatainment. That's my term. I coined that, horatainment. This time of year has lost its appeal. I don't want to make merry, and frankly, you fucking people don't deserve to suckle vicarious thrills from my podcasting teat. Instead, I'm going to watch horror films and sniff burning marker pens in the bunker until the spring thaw. Um, and I'm almost, I'm almost at my place of safety now. If you listen carefully, you can hear the ghost zoomers in the trees nearby. Let's listen to what pearls of wisdom the next generation is dispensing. Okay, I'm just going to get nice and cozy here and I'm going to light me a fire and then throw this marker pen on there. There we go. So, in lieu of a Halloween special, I initially thought that I'd just spend this episode listing people 
who are more popular than me on the internet. And then I plan to explain at length and in detail why that means they're in the CIA, because that's all you people really want anyway, isn't it? That's what counts as doing the work where you come from. But then I thought, no, wait, you deserve something different. So we are going to spend this evening discussing the email correspondence that I had with my local MP about a broken paving stand around a block from my house. And we are going to perform a textual analysis of each email. We are going to discuss recurring motifs and themes, and then we will try to figure out what an appropriate legislative response should be and whether that is different today from how it might have been before we voted to Brexit. Yeah, I say voted to Brexit. Okay, I'm one of those people. So here is my first missive. This is dated February 12th, 2020. And I should point out that this dispute continued until August of this year. So I hope you're ready for a long, long episode. Quote, this is from me. To whom it may concern for your consideration, hypersalemization. This is a story, at least in part, about how a wave of mass hysteria swept Massachusetts between 1692 and 1693. It's one of the most notorious and bizarre incidents in the history of colonial North America, the deadliest witch hunt to ever take place there. It's a story of power, gender, and illusion. In the maelstrom of accusations, paranoia, and executions, we can discern the looming shape of a new nation being born. A nation founded on religious mania, the expanding frontier, and the conquest of a huge, mysterious new world. The pilgrims attempted to build a new society that would settle the religious disputes that had fostered so much conflict in the old world. They believed that many of the traditions of the Church of England were redolent of popery, and that only they had correctly interpreted the word of God. They saw colonial America as a chance to realize his word, but this was a fantasy. What they found when they arrived there was an untamed continent of wild forests, distrustful neighbors, and communities riven by petty grievances. And running through all of this, like a vein filled with poison, was mortal terror of the emerging capitalist economy that was gradually supplanting the feudal order, as well as sexual frustration, misogyny, and a violent response to the perceived threat of women liberated in a new world. In response to these overwhelming forces, the people retreated into a fake world of magical thinking they constructed with the help of their leaders. But who were the people at the center of this story? How did their dreams of a religious utopia fail so catastrophically? And how is it possible that we are still living in the shadow of that failure 330 years later? Okay, I'm not doing the voice for the rest of this segment. Beneath the superstition and the religious fervor that we today associate with a Salem village in 1692, there were very hard-headed practical worries and concerns. Salem 
was notorious as a place of incessant disputes between villagers over property boundaries and between villagers and their ministers over pay and land rights. Their um, religious faith led to them becoming intolerant of people who didn't worship the way they did, you know, and their tendency towards righteous indignation, it brought them into frequent conflict with other townships. And this is from uh, Stacy Schiff um, from The Witches, quote, The Bible Commonwealth perched on the edge of a vast wilderness. From the start, it tangled with another American staple, the devilish savage, the swarthy terrorist in the backyard. The early American lived not only on a frontier, but in many ways out of time. A foreign monarch could be dead one minute and alive the next. So unreliable was the news. The residents of Massachusetts Bay did not always know who sat on the throne to which they owed allegiance. In 1692, they did not know the terms of their government. They had endured without one for three years. Finalized at the end of 1691, a new charter was only just sailing their way. For three months of the year, they could not even be certain which year they were living in. Because the Pope approved the Gregorian calendar, New England rejected it, stubbornly continuing to date the start of the new year to March 25th. This meant that when witches assaulted their first victims in Salem Village, it was 1691 in North America and 1692 in Europe. And there were, um, in a sense, there were two Salems. There was the town, which besides Boston was the um, only urban centre in Massachusetts with more than 2,000 people. And then there was the village of Salem, which was a collection of farmsteads that began to develop in the 1640s as these farmers left the town in search of new land. It didn't take very long for them to begin to assert their independence and almost immediately the town and the village began to quarrel over everything from taxes to where to hold community meetings. You know. and the villagers quoted the Bible to justify why they didn't have to take part in military watch. The town quoted the Bible to justify why the villagers had to contribute towards the building of a new town hall. The villagers demanded their own minister and then they refused to pay the first two in succession. They finally settled on Samuel Parris as their first ordained minister, which then led to tensions with Salem Parish. And in turn, Samuel Parris was causing all kinds of ruckus in the village because he was into everybody's shit, you know. Parris, in turn, was promised £66 a year. Um, a third of this was to be paid in cash, and two-thirds, you know, in the form of firewood, food, other provisions. As a relatively inexperienced clergyman, this was at the lower end of what a minister might expect to make in Massachusetts at the time. Uh, some salaries rose as high as £100. Now, for their money, parishioners expected their services to be delivered in a particular style and with a particular focus on particular themes. Ministers who deviated from the community's expectations might find themselves heckled during a service, harassed in the street, or asked to leave town entirely. There were constables who were tasked with collecting uh, the contributions that went towards a minister's salary. These were initially voluntary, then they became compulsory, and uh, villagers, despite wanting a minister, began to view the collection of these taxes as um, another intrusion onto their, their rights, you know. And 
you might choose to pay in anything from coin to a farm animal. You know, some, some ministers got paid in beehives, you know, for the honey. Uh, you could pay in clothes. It was whatever a resident could spare. Some offered their labor. You know, they would construct privies or they would sow crops for a minister. And it didn't take long for the constables to also find themselves uh, in conflict with the parishioners, um, the ones who refused to contribute anything at all. So the relationship between a minister and his flock was often vexed by the issue of power and control. Who was really the dominant force in this, you know, tortured relationship? It's important as well to, I mean, it's obvious really, but we should still say anyway that Puritans of the time lived in an all-pervading atmosphere of religious faith. They ate, slept, and breathed the word of God, you know, and combined with the temporal and geographical sense of dislocation that Stacey Schiff described, together with the, the paranoia and the superstition that came from living in such close proximity to each other and to a frontier that brought them into frequent conflict with you know local Native Americans, and not to mention the conflicts that they were always having with each other over debt and property and rumor. It should come as no surprise, really, that the average New England Puritan experienced the world through what today we might describe as a kind of psychedelic, almost hallucinogenic state of mind. And we are really not so different these days. Piero Camporesi here, he's describing European peasants of the 17th century, but he might well have been speaking about the Puritans of New England when he said, quote, the underlying hysterical tendency that occasionally exploded into collective epidemic hysteria, culminating in convulsions and paralyses, characterizes the restless inward character of the common man of the pre-industrial era, psychologically linked, as Jean-Pierre Peter has noted, to a sort of infancy, a man who no longer belongs entirely to himself and cannot choose his own social condition. Now, we don't need to believe in the existence of spectres and demons and ghouls and whatnot to accept that at least some Puritans truly, truly believed that they were living in a time where Sabbaths held in the deep dark forest by loose women uh, conjured the devil, that witches flew back and forth across the night sky on broomsticks and that the black cat that followed them home from the local tavern intended to smother their children and steal their soul. It shouldn't really come as a surprise then that the Salem witch hysteria began with the fits and seizures of Betty, Paris and Abigail Williams. Betty was nine, Abigail was 11, and they were the daughter and niece respectively of the minister, Samuel Paris. And there were two other girls, Anne Putnam Jr. and Elizabeth Hobbard, they also began to experience fits and violent outbursts. The Putnams will be returning uh, a little later. 
you know, so they would gargle, they would foam at the mouth, they would make strange sounds and babble in strange voices. The girls said they could feel themselves being pinched and stabbed by invisible forces. And Samuel Paris consulted with a physician who determined that witchcraft was the cause. Naturally, it's witches. The first person directly accused was Paris's own slave, Tituba, who was followed by uh, Sarah Good and Sarah Osborne. Now, I'm not going to get massively into the entire story of Salem, just in the interest of time. But in short, there followed a nine-month period of what's been termed hysteria, um, and around 200 people wound up being accused of witchcraft. In May of 1692, Massachusetts Governor William Phipps, he created a, a court of oyer and terminer, uh, which is a, a court to hear and determine evidence and, and statements. And at this point, the witch hunting, it went into overdrive. You probably have a good idea of how crooked the Salem trials were. I mean, they're one of the most famous incidents of mass panic in history. Um, you know, so they were coaxing confessions out of innocent people. They executed others who refused to admit that they were witches. They allowed spectral evidence to be admitted, so on and, and so forth. In all, there were 14 women, five men, and two dogs that were given the death penalty for witchcraft. One of the men hanged was none other than George Burroughs, who had at one time been the second minister of Salem Village. Tituba wasn't one of the victims, which is fairly remarkable, given that she was a slave of possibly Native American or uh, South American descent, and therefore automatically considered an outcast in that society. Her husband was called John Indian, and it's believed that he was an indigenous man from somewhere in South America as well. He became one of the accusers during the trials. Tituba, though, she managed to work an angle. Um, although her initial confession was beaten out of her by Paris, she went on to develop it into something much bigger. She said that she'd first learned how to cast protection spells against evil spirits back in Barbados, and this is from her first mistress. Um, Elizabeth Paris and Abigail Williams had been fascinated for years by her stories about voodoo and magic, and when Tituba testified at the trials, she was said to have enchanted the court, not in a, a, a witchcraft sense of the term, but just, you know, intrigued them with fantastical tales of deals with the devil, moonlit flights on wooden sticks, sabbaths in the forest, and so on. Uh, Tichiba seems to have known what the people wanted, which is that they wanted confirmation that their fears and superstitions were real. And she told them exactly what they wanted to hear. And as she revealed more about witchcraft and sorcery, she became ever more useful to the parish as a source of information and she became ever more popular with the villagers as a source of entertainment. And she started adding new details and embellishments to the established knowledge about possession and spellcasting. And sure enough, more people started to exhibit these other symptoms of possession as described by Tituba, because 
who wants to be suspected of having missed the boat here, you know? So it became a strange game of one-upsmanship round Salem way. You get one person saying, you know, uh, I was possessed by the demon Azrael before it was cool. And then you get someone else saying, oh yeah, well, I've always been possessed by the demon Azrael and so has my finest milking cow, you know? Um, and the more apparently open and honest that Tichuba became, the less likely it was that she'd see a hangman's rope. She'd perfectly judged that the Puritan urge to, um, yeah, condemn and accuse, that was only superseded by their desire to forgive and redeem. But she knew she had to show a suitable amount of remorse and contrition to get there. You know, they had very high standards for doling out forgiveness, did the Puritans. Complete pains in the ass. It was, in a sense, you might say, a limited hangout on Tichuba's part. Um, so yeah, she said, I speak with the devil. He visits me at night, but I don't practice witchcraft. I'm more like an insider. You know, I'm someone who understands the rules of the spirit world and I can help you all understand them as well. I cannot write my name. She gave exactly the right amount of information to the witch hunters in order to spread confusion and protect herself crucially. And it worked, you know, at least in so much as it enabled her to escape the noose. Uh, Paris refused to pay her jail fees. In fact, he was seething over the fact that um, she'd not only confessed, but then in a sense, won round the, uh, the people of Salem. And she ended up remaining in a cell for another year or so before she was sold onto a new owner in 1693 and disappears from the historical record around then. There are some claims though that she was actually freed from slavery by this new owner although I'm not 100% on this, it doesn't seem likely, but she did manage to save herself from the death penalty all the same. So I've been thinking about uh, Tichuba a lot ever since I covered the years of Spanish rule in Sicily for our Books of War 
show which is available on the patreon and it's returning once we finish the octopus series because i think there's something resonant there which is this concept of occult resistance tichuba's spiritual life it's it has a lot in common with other colonized people who do what they have to do to survive during the day but at night you know may well practice folk magic as a form of defiance you know you see it with oppressed people all the time throughout history this is from the invention of sicily by jamie mckay quote in private away from the eyes of religious authorities many sicilians practiced magic rituals given the intimate nature of this activity it's hard to ascertain precisely how widespread various phenomena have been over time Later anthropological surveys conducted in southern Italy, though, suggest that at least some of the local population would have consumed menstrual blood or urine in order to obtain what they believe would be superhuman powers. Another common praxis was to distort prayers or hijack Bible verses to add chants or incantations that could help the subject to seduce a lover or curse a rival. We know that peasants across the Sicilian countryside shared tales about the Doni di Fora, ghostly figures inspired by the Moroccan figure of the Jun, which apparently haunted small villages, punishing disorderly families and that in the cities, high magic like divination was widespread. In 17th century Palermo, a woman named Antonina Lombardo offered to read her clients' futures by creating patterns of fava beans, cereals, and other foodstuffs. A gentleman, Santo Gasparo, claimed he could interpret the sounds of animals, particularly the whine of pigs, to diagnose the health of his customers' souls. Anyone wishing to purchase a magical object could have headed to Bellaro Market, which obtained a particular reputation for its stockpiles of amulets and jewelry that were commonly used in the practice of necromancy. Some historians have suggested that, faced with the Inquisition's oppression, the islanders developed a form of occult resistance by which they adopted feigned ignorance and opportunistic subversion as alternatives to outright revolt. The displays of obedience then may well have been accompanied by an individualistic form of rebellion. So this brings me to Silvia Federici's analysis of witch hunting. And I'm hoping this end run here will serve as more of a signpost to her work on the subject than like an overall summary of everything that she has to say. Um, I wouldn't agree with absolutely everything she's written on the subject, but, but it's still fascinating and pretty insightful stuff and acts as a good launch pad, you know. Um, just a heads up though, she has had some recent not so great takes on uh, trans people in her more recent work, so just bear that in mind, all right? But anyway, uh, she writes this, quote, while deploring the extermination of the witches, many have insisted on portraying them as wretched fools afflicted by hallucinations so that their persecution could be explained as a process of social therapy or could be described in medical terms as a panic a craze, an epidemic, all characterizations that exculpate the witch hunters and depoliticize their crimes. In fact, I myself have just realized I referred to it as hysteria or panic earlier in this segment, and that's not really quite accurate, as we will see. Because what she's arguing is that by writing off the witch hunts and, you know, the mass murder of tens of thousands of women as hysteria that's not sufficient 
something deeper was driving the hangings and the stonings and the beheadings and the burnings. Federici argues that we're missing something huge if we chalk it all up to panic and superstition. She says that the witch hunts, for one thing, helped weaken peasant resistance to land privatization and aggressive taxation. They further entrenched divisions between men and women at a time when, you know, capitalism was gradually supplanting feudalism. The hunts served to degrade the role of women and transform them into docile, productive subjects. Quote, Contrary to the view propagated by the Enlightenment, the witch hunt was not the last spark of a dying feudal world. Witch hunting reached its peak between 1580 and 1630, in a period, that is, when feudal relations were already giving way to the economic and political institutions typical of mercantile capitalism. It was in this long iron century that, almost by a tacit agreement, in countries often at war against each other, the stakes multiplied and the state started denouncing the existence of witches and taking the initiative of the persecution. So rather than a ground up phenomenon in which, you know, peasants spontaneously turned on each other in fits of mass panic and hysteria, we need to look at the witch hunts as a top-down phenomenon that was driven by magistrates and clergymen and other authority figures to dominate and exploit the, the social order beneath them, especially when it came to women. Uh, Salem is a perfect example of this in miniature. The first two girls to make accusations were, of course, the daughter and niece of the local minister, Samuel Paris. And they will have grown up in an intensely uh, patriarchal, coercive, and controlling atmosphere. And Tituba only made her confession after Paris beat it out of her. Paris himself was a transplant to a community where social cohesion was frayed from incessant bickering over economics, you know, over property rights, over taxes. And the local government and Paris's own religious authority they always seemed one failed harvest or one botched sermon away from being overthrown. Now, I'm not arguing that you know Samuel Paris engineered the entire Salem witch affair, but I am saying that he will not have found the trials unwelcome. You know, they served to shore up his own authority. That's how he'll have viewed them anyway. Because what better way, really, to unify people and crush resistance to an ever-expanding and developing capitalist system than with some good old-fashioned witch hunting. And Federici points to the work of Michael Tosic. Uh, he studied Colombian tin miners and developed an analysis arguing that witch hunts were devised as a way to smash communal forms of living and empower a new class of modernizers. And here, Federici's analysis lines up with what we were talking about earlier, when she says that the emerging class of capitalists, of mercantile capitalists, saw a war against folk magic as an important symbolic struggle. Um, Quote, magic is premised on the belief that the world is animated, unpredictable, and that there is a force in all things so that every event is interpreted as the expression of an occult power that must be deciphered and bent to one's will. So practitioners of folk magic accept the existence of a natural world that can't be 
controlled or reasoned with or dominated. But if you want to exploit it for resources and profit on a mass scale, that necessitates massive amounts of destruction. You can't have people standing, you know, opposed to that. Quote, magic was an obstacle to the rationalization of the work process and a threat to the establishment of the principle of individual responsibility. Above all, magic seemed a form of refusal of work, of insubordination, and an instrument of grassroots resistance to power. The world had to be disenchanted in order to be dominated. So yeah, much of, of what she argues, it's backed up when you look at who the people were who were targeted by witch hunts. They were mostly women, generally poor, uh, enslaved in some cases. Many of them still practiced folk magic or were forced to rely on charity to survive, which encouraged a kind of, you know, uh, communal support systems and whatnot. Quote, by the 16th century, the attack against magic was well underway and women were its most likely targets. Though the witch hunt targeted a broad variety of female practices, it was above all in this capacity, as sorcerers, healers, performers of incantations and divinations, that women were persecuted. Their claim to magical power undermined the power of the authorities and the state, giving confidence to the poor in their ability to manipulate the natural and social environment and possibly subvert the constituted order. The witch hunt was, at least in part, an attempt to criminalize birth control, remember lots of herbal remedies for unwanted pregnancies and whatnot, and place the female body, the uterus, at the service of population increase and the production and accumulation of labor power. When this task was accomplished, when social discipline was restored and the ruling class saw its hegemony consolidated, witch trials came to an end. And this disciplinary function, it's made extremely apparent when you zero in on Salem. Uh, Sarah Good, one of the accused, she was, quote, a forlorn, friendless, and forsaken creature, broken down by wretchedness of condition and ill repute. Uh, Sarah Osborne, she refused to go to church. That'll put a target on your back in a, a place like Salem. And the persecution even crossed gender lines as well, as we've said, five men were among the, the dead. Giles Corey was an 80-year-old farmer who was initially a supporter of the trials until his wife was nicked. And at that point, he began to suspect the whole affair was a farce and he was himself then arrested. He refused to confess to witchcraft on general principle and he ended up being pressed to death. The idea was that they would place heavier and heavier stones on him until he finally admit to being a witch, but because he never did that, he was just crushed instead. And this is the execution in particular that seems to have, um, for lack of a better term, broken the spell, you know. So the trial served some kind of social disciplinary function, but they also served certain political and financial agendas too, uh, as Federici points out, and as we can see explicitly with Salem. Because driving much of the witch hunt was the incredibly powerful Putnam family. They dominated Salem. And Thomas Putnam, the head of the family, he more or less appointed himself the chief witch hunter. 
And once someone he'd accused confessed to witchcraft, whatever land they owned would be seized by the state after their execution and the Putnams would buy it for a fraction of the cost. He had his eye on Giles Corey's land. And this is why Giles Corey's death entailed such a protracted period of torture. Because he wouldn't confess, his state couldn't be seized by the government after he died and Putnam couldn't buy it for a, a song. But managing the witch hunt itself was a delicate political balancing act. You know, if you were, if the abuse was too egregious, then it would make the underlying economic motivations apparent and it might risk upsetting this social order. And from the beginning, you know, contrary to popular historical accounts of the time, there were actually plenty of people in Salem who were unafraid of speaking out and signing petitions denouncing these trials. And there was something like a backlash, you know, because of this. And the possibility of the trials tipping the colony into mass revolt appears to have genuinely panicked uh, William Phipps, the governor. He'd taken a largely hands-off role in office. Um, he generally preferred to defer to Puritan customs because they were such a pain in the ass as a people. Um, and despite his own religious faith being somewhat ambiguous, he made a political calculation. He washed his hands, you know, as the, the trials began. But this attempt at, at taking a step back and a, a detached role in proceedings, that failed when his own wife was accused of witchcraft. And it's at this point that he demanded that the court of Oya and Termina finish its work. And now shutting down the trials made Phipps some pretty powerful enemies, you know, including increased mother, and his son, Cotton. They were said to be anguished that the trials had come to a, a premature end, as they put it. And then not long after this, Phipps was recalled to London, uh, partly to avert the possibility that he might face a revolt from the powerful um, mercantile class and, and landowners who he'd offended. But as one last fuck you, you know, he pardoned all the people who were still um, awaiting trial for witchcraft. So... Occult resistance to oppression and adversity and witch hunts as tools of the ruling class. The people in power, they never stopped seeing witches around every corner. They just phrased their denunciations and efforts to divide and rule in a more secular language these days, you know. So, for example, here in Britain, children's authors and op-ed writers are trying to burn trans people at the stake. And there's an ongoing attempt to purge the Labour Party of anyone who's even so much as expressed sympathy for, you know, Palestinians or vaguely approved of a, a redistributive agenda. And we saw what happened with abortion access in the States this year, you know. QAnon is driven by the same strange puritanical streak and religious mania that characterized Salem in 1692. The architects of QAnon are drawing on a long-established tendency in, you know, the American psyche. And it's not even fair, really, to say, you know, it's just an American thing. This happens all over the place. Who could look at the system as it is now and not see that we are now smack bang in the middle of a period of profound derangement of that system? The economy is in free fall and this machine is juddering and it's smoking and it's shooting sparks and it's falling apart. The harvest keeps failing 
friends. The Ice Age is coming and they'll be looking for more and more witches in the decades ahead to blame it all on and discipline the rest of us. And it can seem overwhelming and relentless and pretty goddamn bleak because they seem so powerful and we always seem to be a step behind them and at each other's throats as well. And that's why I'm so fascinated by this concept of occult resistance. Because yeah, if you are going to face what's coming, then you'll need your theory and your praxis and your union and your little red book. But given the mountains that we're going to have to climb and the, the little demons who are just roaming the world right now, a world of stifling straight lines and clean, lethal edges. You're not just going to need all that, my friend. You are also going to have to start believing in magic. As I understand it, a fair few of you have been wondering what became of Todd Brett after last year's Halloween special. Apparently, if nothing else, that show did a tremendous job of advertising the I Love Pod Media product. Well, I caught up with Todd Brett in a most unexpected way. And I feel like now is the time to let you in on what became of Todd Brett. This episode has never been aired, never will be aired, because Todd Brett has now disappeared, vanished. So, enjoy. Honey, I'm home. Katie? Katie, what do you say we grab the kids and head out to Salvatore's for dinner tonight, honey? Where? Oh. God. Oh, no. Go, oh, God. Noah, what happened? Noah, look at Daddy. Where's your mommy? Where's your mommy, Noah? Kitchen. On the floor. Wait right here. I'm coming right back. Honey! Katie, where are you? Oh, God. Katie, here. Let me try to stop the bleeding. How could this happen? Killer targeted our house, no security. I told you, I told you we needed a secure alarm LED smart cam on the back porch and a secure alarm time-activated touchpad print sensor to access 
both doors, not just the front entrance. But, honey, I thought we talked this through and agreed it was too expensive. Look at me, Chad. Look me in the eyes. Look how much it cost us in the end. Oh, dear God, why did I take the chance? You're not alone in this, Chad. Why did we both take the chance? Katie! Katie! Wake up, buddy! Katie! Oh, my God! I no longer fear death because I've already been to hell. Secure alarm. Not having one might be the most expensive mistake you ever make. It's Tales of American Bloodshed with Todd Brett and Omar the Londoner Swithin, only on I Love Pod Media. This is Tales of American Bloodshed, companion series to American Bloodshed, hosted by me, Todd Brett. Joined as ever by Vauxhall Cross's very own Omar the Londoner Swithin. Hello. I wanted to start this one with a little personal stock ticking. There's been a lot of misinformation out there on the AB Reddit and on Twitter, and I want to clarify a few things. Yes, I've worked with the feds. I've worked with cops. Grassroots community organizing runs in my blood. And when the FBI reached out to me and told me they wanted to understand Antifa better, I saw no reason to turn down an opportunity to educate them. An opportunity to turn some federales into comrades. Yeah. Because I'm of the left. I'm in Mm -hmm. it. I'm of it. I sleep it. I eat it. I breathe the work and the left. I firmly Mm -hmm. believe that only airplanes and soccer teams should have right wings. Uh, This is what drove me out of England in the end. Normal Island, hello. This refusal on the part of the hard left to believe that, you know, we could engage in a a productive way with the Met Police and Rupert Murdoch. I I don't want to leave the left, but the left seems Mm. to want to leave me. The hostility from so-called comrades when I admitted I had reservations about the Isle of Pod Union Drive really hammered that home. Yeah, the so-called progressives thought it was strange that I arrived in Kiev with a security detail and a mobile podcasting studio three months before the Russians invaded. Mm. It's like, so what if I took Alina Semenyaka to dinner multiple times? How else does a journalist dig deep, you know, really get in there and poke around? What's, what's in a selfie, you know? Well... I mean, I had to explain those Azov cake party pictures repeatedly when the real enemy is Putin and always will be. Sometimes it feels like people won't be happy there until they're dead. Yeah, I mean, I'd be glad to have round after round pumped into my nude body if it secured freedom for those currently without. (laughs) Who else can say that? We're not bitter, though. Never. I mean, they can make all the heart jokes they like. I'm out here reporting from the street, you know? But, but I feel like if American Bloodshed and now the spinoff is about anything, it's about asking the questions that sometimes make us unpopular with our comrades. Yeah, and that was also a key theme in my series, Corbin Sanity. Great series. And it's going to be a key thing of today's show, too, because we're doing a little deep dive into one of the most bizarre accusations I've seen put out there, that my dad was the architect of the Maury Island UFO incident. Yes, so, I mean, this is an episode about how disinformation and conspiracy theories targeted at notable media personalities is is used to heighten the divisions in not just American society, but in Britain too, for that matter. Yeah. And as an added bonus, this one 
is entirely live. It's streaming right now on YouTube, Twitch, and Discord. Yeah, we uh, we don't want haters accusing us of deceptive editing or you know, something <laughs> like that. I'm pretty nervous. Oh, me too, me too. Normally, I'm of the opinion that you only give oxygen to uh, baseless rumors by trying to deny them. But the last few weeks have really uh, illustrated why we need a deeper conversation. Yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree, Chief. So tell me about the Maury Island incident. Uh, sinister music, please. Okay. July 1948, a guy called Ray Palmer is the editor of Amazing Stories magazine, and he's just published a letter from a guy called Fred Lee Chrisman, who claims to have physical evidence of flying saucers. Yeah, but this isn't the first time that Palmer and Chrisman have been in touch, is it? No, it's not. You're right. Chrisman already had a letter published in Amazing Stories the year before, and he claimed he'd had a gunfight in a cave full of Daros. Oh, hang on, what Deros? What are, what are they? Um, okay, we'll back up a bit. Deros is a name for an underground race of evil creatures who are supposedly in permanent conflict with a race of good creatures called Teros. Oh my God! The concept came from a guy called Richard Sharp Shaver, who had a nervous breakdown in the 1930s after he became convinced that his welding equipment had been possessed by Deros. According to Shaver. When he was serving time in prison, he'd been taken to an underground base deep inside the earth by a beautiful woman who served as an emissary of the Taros. Okay, and let me guess, uh, she explained the law to him, didn't she? Uh, she did. We're uh, sort of getting off on a tangent here, but Shaver says the woman explained how human beings were descended from the Taros, who'd arrived on earth with the Daros 12,000 years ago. As Shaver explained it, all the evil in the world was the fault of the Daros. They still kidnap humans, blow up planes, start wars, poison the atmosphere, you name it. Well, let me just interject here and say, I've been around the British left long enough to know when I'm hearing anti-Semitism. Well, uh, yeah, but that's why, it's the reason Shaver's story is significant. Is it because he had his accounts published in Amazing Stories between 1944 and 48? And you can see a lot of early anticipations of what became established parts of UFO lore. Then what happened in 1947? What happened? Kenneth Arnold saw his flying saucers, which weren't actually flying saucers. They were shaped like boomerangs. And an entire new field of conspiracism was born. I'm so sorry about that. I knew I was fucking something up there. Um, oh, yeah. Uh... So by the time Fred Chrisman was writing his letter to Amazing Stories, Kenneth Arnold was busy investigating UFO accounts in the Pacific Northwest area, and Ray Palmer, who was always looking for a way to boost sales, passed along Chrisman's information to Arnold. So, hang on. So how did Chrisman come to have UFO material? This is, uh, this is the, the Maury Island incident. In brief, there was a harbor patrolman called Harold Dahl, who was trawling the East Bay of Maury Island in Washington in his telling, quote, On June 21, 1947, in the afternoon, about 2 o'clock, I was patrolling the East Bay of Maury Island. I, as a captain, was steering my patrol boat close to the shore of a bay on Maury Island. On board were two crewmen, my 15-year-old son and his dog. As I looked up from the wheel on my boat, I noticed six very large donut-shaped aircraft. One of the objects 
began spewing forth what seemed like thousands of newspapers from somewhere in its inside of its center. These newspapers, which turned out to be a, a white type of very lightweight metal, fluttered to earth. Some fell on the boat, breaking crew member's arm and killing our dog. So how does Chrisman enter the picture here? It's a little bit more mysterious. Some accounts have him as the commanding officer of the patrol boat. Some say his he was friends with Dahl. This incident is also where we get the first known accounts of mysterious men in black threatening UFO witnesses and to, to keeping quiet. But here's the thing. Tell me the thing. The FBI investigated Crispin's claims and concluded the entire incident was a hoax. They say he and Dahl cooked it up to sell stories to Fantasy Magazine. So, how exactly are you connected to this, man? Well, there's um, something else you should know about Fred Crispin. Uh, two some things, actually. One is that he uh, was subpoenaed to appear at the trial of Clay Shaw, who was accused of plotting the assassination of JFK. The other is that Christmas... It, Christmas... <laughs> the other is that Chrisman was also said to have been friends with a guy called Mark Michael Riccardo and his dad Marshall. Okay, wait a minute. Back up. So Chrisman was connected to the JFK assassination. Depending on who you talk to, he may have been one of the three tramps the cops picked up that day. And who's this uh, Riccardo? Riccardo, what's it? Michael Riccardo. Long story short, he claims to have illegally modified some software that was stolen by the Justice Department in the 80s. Uh, promise. Uh, I think I've heard of that. Isn't that connected to the suicide of a reporter or something? Yeah, it's a reporter called Danny Casolaro killed, killed, killed himself while investigating the story. Oh my god, that's so sad. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> Naturally, what I like to call the conspiracy left to think he was murdered by the reptilians. I, I was going to say, I was sensing there'd be more anti-Semitism in this story. One thing I'll say about Britain. I wish we had access to free mental health care like you guys. Yeah, yeah, you, you guys, you really need to get on that. Sort it out. I thought the exact same thing when I first read that story. That's why we need to do the work, man. Yeah, but... um. We got off track we, again. We did. Okay, so I'm allegedly connected to this because a certain somebody has been drawing wild-ass conclusions and making some pretty weird claims. So I was actually the one who uh, saw this thread on our Reddit, <clears throat> and then I found out that this guy has been posting on, on Twitter and everywhere else as well. So the first post that I'm going to read here is from Ghost Stories Matt, and this is two weeks ago. Oh, wait, hang on. So the first post here is from G Stories M, and this is from two weeks ago. Quote, you assholes genuinely think Todd Brett is some kind of ally, don't you? This is why you people keep losing, because you can't see a Fed even when he's glowing in the dark. Mm. This guy is a long-time Fed. He was born into it, and I have the receipts. I love to hunt content creators, for they are the most dangerous game of all. I am collecting content creators for them to be slaves in my afterlife. That's how that post begins and goes on for, and I've checked, 11,232 words on Reddit. He had to split it into several different posts because it was so long. 
But he didn't stop there, though, did he? He did not. When we hosted our last phone-in show, guess who dropped 16 voicemails in the inbox? Uh, it wouldn't happen to have been uh, user Reddit user G Stories M, would it? Uh, it was indeed. Okay, so I'm going to break the fourth wall for a moment here and just let our viewers and listeners know that what I'm about to play, Todd hasn't heard before. This is all new to Todd's ears. So you are getting his reaction in real time. This is the first voicemail that G Stories M left in our inbox. Hello guys, I'd like to ask Todd if he's aware that one of the three tramps in Dealey Plaza is none other than Graydon Brett, Sergeant Major in US Army Intelligence and grandfather to none other than Todd Brett, federal employee and content creator. Why not cough up the deets, Todd? How come grandpa is such a dirty little secret if you've got nothing to hide? What's your real agenda, Todd? What's your real mission? We should probably say now, uh, we have a little bit of history with G Stories then, don't we? Yeah, he uh, he got a tryout for I Love Pod a year or so back, and he just fucking whiffed it. <laughs> I mean, he sounds like Sean Bean with a fucking cluster headache. Can I uh, can I swear on well, this, you actually? you did. We're live. Yeah, well, I checked his show out. He releases one episode every two weeks, and he never stops talking about heroin and suckling from teeth. L- little professional advice here, uh, G-Stories, Matt. If you want to make it in this game, you have to flood your listeners with content. You have to release an episode every other day. You have to spray your content everywhere, never giving your listeners a moment to process anything you're saying. Yep. And there's more too. Uh, here's where he starts getting a little bit weird. He isn't your biological grandpa, by the way, Todd. You were adopted by Graydon Brett Jr. in 1985. You were born in Copenhagen and lived at an orphanage until you were seven years old. I checked the documentation thoroughly. The CIA funded a series of experiments in those institutions through the 60s, the 70s, and into the 80s. They fell under the umbrella of MKUltra, but they were supervised by the Danish Psychological Institute. A psychiatrist called Zarnoff A. Mednik dreamed up the idea of outsourcing this aspect of the research to the Danes. He collaborated with another doctor called Finny Schulsinger. The money came from the Human Ecology Fund, and while officially the project was concerned with developing better treatments for schizophrenia, it was really more brainwashing research. I've got it all right here. And you caught somebody's attention. I don't know how, but suddenly you're on a plane to the States in 1991, and you're... Uh, so, uh, Todd, are you adopted, mate? Control. No. Uh, okay. Uh, so, uh, uh, here's the really weird one. All you have to do is put in a good word. Just tell I love pod. I wasn't on phone. Just tell them to give me another shot, man. Uh, when's your next show? It's in three days' time. I want a five-year contract and a company scooter in 72 hours, or I'm taking the next step. Mm-hmm. Uh, the next step. The next step. Uh, you okay, mate? Yeah. This is fun. Let's uh, Let's keep going. Um, okay, mate. Um, so this was the, the last one that he sent. Beep. Okay, asshole. 72 hours is up, and I don't have a contract or a scooter. 
So here it is, baby. Window. Your trigger is window. Ha! Fucking clown. So, uh, Todd? Todd, uh, you okay, mate? Kill we on window. All your friends. <laughs> your what? trigger is window. Curled up on the windowsill, bathed in warm morning sunlight. Uh, uh, so, uh, what, what do we think about, uh, G stories, um, and his, uh, his little attempts at investigating? As you stand there, do you ever unable to move, foresee strange, you are asleep, lights in the sky, there is something terribly wrong here. Control, are you, uh, very funny man, can, uh, can someone come and unlock the door? Uh, and that about does it for... Graveyard Bunker 3. Um, I'm often accused by the haters of not bringing enough, I don't know, humor and optimism to this project. Normally I would say, fuck off. But remember, I still need to uh, maintain those engagement numbers that I managed to get back after the special last year led to so much death and recrimination. And you know, I've I've looked at the uh, the analytics, and I'm confident that what you people really want is a positive, cheery note on which to end every episode. So I would like to sing you a song, to send you off with a skip in your step and a smile on your face. Happy Halloween, friends! I love everybody. <laughs>